0: Thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast, Peter Real. My name, of course, is P E T E R R I E H L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast, Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills of Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access Patreon membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, okay like said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison. Or The Power of Flashback was one episode, which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2, Sleepers, and that was then, This Is Now. With the all-access patron membership, you will also receive a refrigerator magnet with the Chills at Will podcast logo, and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news. You will get a shout-out on a future episode, too. With the VIP patron tier, which is $10 a month, you'll get access to all episodes, a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020. And it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gone to interview people like Disha Filia. What? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson. Luis Alberto Orea, Gene Guerrero. Gustavo Arellano. Taylor Bias. Gabby Bates. Alice Elliot Dark. Nadia Owusu. And so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman, Ingrid Rojas-Contreras, Jamil John Kochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks, Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Reina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Kato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Mulari daraj Sara Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, Jose Antonio Vargas, Laura Worrell, so 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 many cool people patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast peter real what are you waiting for see you over there hello i am pete real a high school english and spanish teacher An avid reader and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 171 of the Chills of Will podcast. The pleasure today to be joined by Danielle Prescott. And a little bit about Danielle. She's an author, a content creator, and journalist. She's also a 15-year veteran of the beauty and fashion industry and a graduate of NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. A lifelong fashion obsessive, she was most recently the style director of BET.com. Her book, you can see to my right shoulder here, is called Token Black Girl and is part memoir, Part narrative nonfiction and an exploration of the ways that modern media can influence one's self-esteem. Danielle, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Good, thanks. I, I hope I did okay on the on the intro. Anything you want to add about the bio? Uh,
1: no, absolutely. Yeah, it's perfect.
0: Like I said, it's great to have you and um, you know, kind of swimming in the books, just having finished it today. Oh wow. And uh it, I had high expectations and it was even better than I thought. Just a just a lot to talk about, so I'm looking forward to getting into it yeah you know so you, the book is obviously like like it says here in the in the intro in the bio excuse me it's part memoir but you know it doesn't cover everything in your life so and you do talk about it in the book but i wonder about like your early relationship with the written word like was it a you know print rich environment at home were you like the kid is always going to the library and picking up 10 books like what
1: mm-hmm. was that
0: like and then you know what kind of things were you reading
1: yes i loved books my mom was a kindergarten teacher before she was a stay-at-home mom so she spent a lot of time like teaching us how to read and like Mm. reading to us so before i even enrolled in preschool like i could already read Mm. uh i think i put this in the book yeah i did so then when we're going through like the school environment they don't like do skipping grades anymore like this was Mm the 90s so they would just take me out for certain classes and put me in okay the the older kids class so like in the third grade i like went to the sixth grade for reading mm-hmm. uh, i was always like three grades ahead or whatever mm-hmm. and um and so i would read a lot all the time mm-hmm. and uh i used to spend like my birthday money on books like when i would mm-hmm. go like, I'd be like can you please take me to borders can you please mm-hmm. take me to barnes and noble
0: borders what is that
1: <laughs> right
0: anymore i don't think unfortunately
1: Dang i don't it. think so mm. i loved it though i mm. love the experience of going to the bookstore i love being able to select my books mm. um my parents built me a custom bookshelf in my childhood bedroom yeah I was always overflowing with how many books mm. i had um and so i felt i felt very lucky to be able to write a book
0: mm. yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, I mean, we'll talk about the specifics of the book a little bit more, a little bit later, but like, what does it feel like to see your book, your name on a, on a book jacket?
1: Like, Right. It's so surreal. It really <laughs> is. And now that like, you know, publishing book publishing is a really long and slow process. Mm-hmm. So for me, I finished this book in 2021, like completely yeah. Okay. And then it was like another year until it came out, which was also kind of weird. So I, in a lot of ways, was like, oh, I'm moving on from it. I'm on to the next creative project. I'm on, uh, I'm on to right, other right, stuff. Right. And you kind of have to like continuously engage with the projects you've already finished. Mm. Um, and it's like surreal because I'm like, oh, I finished it. But now I have to feel it because yeah. other people are reading it. Okay. Um, and that has been like kind of a strange experience.
0: Yeah, I bet. Yeah. well shoot i gotta change my plans i was gonna ask you what the 13th word is on page 52 of the book so you may not remember that okay i
1: definitely all don't all right. fair
0: that. enough fair. <laughs> fair enough but yeah I mean, obviously you had you had a lot of um experience having your name on the the bylines and all that but to see it on the book cover right different different yes. experience yeah. yeah um so you talk about what you were you know that you were definitely a big reader um i mean who were you reading like you mentioned some of them um, kind of in your later years like who were some of those writers who really made you love the written word
1: I read a lot of like YA 90s fiction so you know like Judy Bloom, mm. like Francine Pascal like I read um this like crazy book series I don't even remember what it was called but it was like about these like teens in like Rhode Island um I read a lot of V.C. Andrews, okay. like anything that was like, like a lot. Cause I, w- I was always seeking more of the thing that I liked. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, after V.C. Andrews died, a lot of people like published her books under her name. So it was like all, they were oh, always yeah. available. So I really liked series and things that were always available. I got introduced to Harry Potter when I was like 10. Mm. So I started reading those books. Um, you know and then of course like all the classics that you have to read that are part of your like normal curriculum Hmm. um but yeah I spent a lot of time like seeking out I think most of my my stories were about like girlhood experiences um because I think as a kid I was just kind of confused a lot and I was looking for outlets Hmm. and touchstones to relate to
0: Hmm. well I appreciate that and you're talking about like Harry Potter and and vc andrews i'm not extremely familiar with vc andrews but i i was reading recently you know i mean this idea of like not i guess revisionist history in some ways i mean obviously jk rowling has come out as extremely problematic and vc andrews a lot um you know with like depictions of people who are not white um mm. in many ways right so i wonder like I mean, do you look back kind of now like oh man like what was i like i wish i wouldn't have read that or something where you know that was the age you were at and you've, you've learned what not to take in and what to take in. I don't know. How, how do you kind of see that in, in, in reverse? Um,
1: You know, I think I, I always had enjoyable experiences reading, but I think one of the unfortunate things, and this is still an issue in publishing even today is that there just isn't enough representation. And when authors who are non-white come to the table. Um, Tracy Ellis Ross talked about this when she was on LeBron James' show. Mm. And Tracy Ellis Ross has all the privilege in the world. She's Diana Ross's daughter. She is, you know, the Nepo baby if you really want to like put a label on it. But she was saying that when she has creative projects and they're primarily geared towards a Black audience, she first has to convince people that Mm. people will watch and they will engage and like why this project is worth it. Mm. And that that is so much labor before she has even gotten to do the work that she wants to do it's like so much convincing and I do feel like that is kind of part of the hurdle in publishing and that like maybe like not a lot of people have the stamina to take it on because it really is challenging and certainly when I was a child like these books were just you know I, we didn't have Google. Yet, like in the sophisticated way that mm-hmm. we do now. So it wasn't like I could Google books for me. You know, yeah. um, I have a friend now, she is 18 and a freshman at Harvard. Her name's Marley. When she was 10 years old, she started um, this organization called 100 Black Girl Books. And it became mm-hmm. a movement because she said, All of the books for me are about white boys and their dogs that's who everyone's telling you to read. Right? And so she's like, where are books where I can see myself? And it really is so wonderful that she had Instagram, Twitter, mm. um, YouTube, all of these outlets to like reach people and speak to people. And like, it, it really worked. Mm. Um, and she ended up finding 100 black girl books. And then that proved to publishers, like, all sometimes these corporations need is proof of concept mm. and so that proof to publishers like yes there is an audience for this people do want this content we should be making it um but that was like eight years ago yeah. that's not even that long ago
0: Sure, right 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 no of course not right
1: yeah oh
0: man you know put that in the show notes so marley um last name or play, easy way to find that
1: yeah
0: okay cool that's so awesome so you said she's at harvard 18
1: she is yes she's gonna change the world (laughs) yeah right
0: Right? great for her 17 more years so she can become president all right cool Mm -hmm.
1: yeah
0: four more four more election cycles maybe (laughs) so so i'm wondering about um you you said that that term uses proof of concept is that like it sounds like an industry term is that is that like like a lawyer would use precedent that kind of thing
1: yeah i would say so it's like um you know everyone is trying to make money and so they want proof that an endeavor is going to ultimately be profitable before they spend time dedicating resources to making this thing mm-hmm. happen um and so unfortunately part of the racist assumption is that like oh black people don't want to read they're not going to find these books like and it's like well if they don't have them they're of course not going to find them but that like is very, it's a kind of like a chicken egg situation. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, what comes first? Like, how do we get readers if we're not making content that speaks to them? How do we get an audience if we're not creating things for them to look at?
0: Mm. Yeah, it seems like the the idea of like, I mean, and you mentioned a lot of similar examples in the book, like Damned If You Do, Damned If You Don't, like, you know, there'll be a show like that, that you know, that, that champions Latino, Latinx representation and if the show doesn't do well for a million different reasons it's kind of like well we gave it a try mhm right mhm and you know and then then it becomes like a, a blame game like well why didn't latinos come out to watch it well maybe they didn't know about it or you know like and it's just one obviously such a, a slim uh margin of error kind of thing right
1: absolutely but also one of the consistent things that is problematic for people of color who are creatives is that they need white audiences to engage with their work Right. People of color are still considered <laughs> minorities because they represent a minor part right. of the population. Right. And so, you know, I think we saw this in the summer of 2020 when the New York Times bestseller list was dominated by anti racism books mm. and Black authors. However, three years later, if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, there are two Black authors on there. Both of them are considered celebrities one is Michelle Obama, one is Stephen A. Smith. Hmm. No black fiction writers, no other black nonfiction writers. Right, that's it. And it's because the white audiences are no longer engaging with these books mm. anymore. And yeah. it's like there's no way to get on that list without engaging the white audience.
0: Hmm. Oh man, that makes a lot of sense. And you, I mean, you make great points about it. Unfortunately, they're they're true points. You know, especially towards the end of the book about about like you said. You know, like when you worked at BET.com. Oh. And that you you know there were a lot of great things about you, you said, but it's also like you felt like you were kind of put into a niche. Is that safe to say? like like with the quote unquote mainstream, you weren't getting the same invites you'd gotten when you were at l and style and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. So this need to to get the quote unquote mainstream audiences. Rewinding a little bit, so you getting into writing, you getting into publishing and fashion, which obviously all go together, I guess kind of which one came first? I mean, was it like, man, I love fashion so much, I want to find a place to to write about it, to share about it? Or was it like, I love writing, oh, fashion's a great thing to write about?
1: Um, It was mostly that I loved writing and I loved magazines. And I did not know as a magazine reader that there were other things that went into the magazine besides the words like mm. I didn't know like how the photos came together I didn't know how anything worked and then when I got an internship at a magazine and that was the first time I saw that there were many different <laughs> <laughs> departments and people responsible for different jobs that helped the magazine get published and that the words we're not the only thing that uh-huh. went into it, so I spent till I, I, my first summer that I interned, I was working in the features department. Um, but they would give me all these tasks to do, which now I recognize as busy work, but <laughs> I wanted to prove that I was like enthusiastic and good, so I would finish all that work fast. Mm-hmm. And so then I'd be like, Do you have anything else for me to do? Is there and like they'd be like, No, like you did everything. So then yeah. I started helping out in the fashion closet because they always seemed to need help and, and need bodies. And, and so I was like, okay, like, this is an easy thing for me to do. And that helped me transition into working in fashion.
0: Hmm. The books, the book's intro is, is you at 15 years old in the early two thousands. And it's, you're really talking about, you know, and it's, it was only, only 20 years ago and it makes us feel old. Right. But only 20 years ago, 2003, but it really was such a different world. Right. But people actually like bought magazines. Oh Yeah right like heart you know the magazines versus digital and right i mean a lot i mean you know better than i do like a lot of companies are like ah digital like eh, you know oh, that's yeah. like so new wave and like come on like and obviously now the the dinosaurs are the one you know but um but you wrote about the very like expansion cover i learned a lot of terms like i feel like i know what that means like i obviously know what expansion means but but like almost like a fold-out cover
1: yeah mm-hmm. right
0: and you you write about like basically the like the erasure of like of black women f- faces and and Raven Simone was was featured but maybe not featured in the I, g- I guess she was inside the the expansion cover right Yes. So if you're looking yeah. at it, you would see shoot who was it in those days Was that like Hillary Duff like
1: Yeah, it was Hillary Duff, Mandy Moore, both Olsen twins, okay. um, someone else blonde. I can't remember. And then on the the underside, which is mm-hmm. folded in, mm-hmm. you unfold it, and it's Raven Simone Alexis Bledel, Lindsay Lohan. Who is Alexis Bledel is a white passing Latina, mm. so that's also a great shirt. Right. Um, and absolutely zero Asian women.
0: I mean, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? I mean, you talk about like you literally can't see the women of color on on the cover unless you unfold mm-hmm. it, and such right. Mm-hmm. oh man and you know i don't know that it's, i don't know you necessarily you don't necessarily link that the raven simone but you go as the book goes in a little bit further you you know you kind of define the cover the, excuse me the title mm-hmm. um you write about like you know the the, the token black girl is quote unquote, is like you know can be seen as non-threatening can be a cover against racism like that the crin- cringy is not even cringy is an understatement the cringy idea of like oh you know my black friend
1: mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm.
0: and you write really well about like the token black girl in TV and in movies and, you know, the background and sidekick and all of that. And I mean, you have some bars in here for sure. You have some poetic, poetic writing. One of the lines is quote, the indoctrination was subtle and absolute. And I think I read that twice, just the word absolute, like what, what, what do you mean by the, indoctrina- the indoctrination and how it was so um, subtle and absolute? <laughs>
1: um, well, I think that pretty much refers to the need to assimilate. Um, A lot of people think that assimilation is a choice. And I think of it as a survival mechanism mm. for people of color who were never safe to be themselves or to explore what that their self might be before they are forced to kind of defer to white supremacy. Mm. And so that's what I mean by the indoctrination into it. It's like, before I even had a chance to kind of explore certain things, those things were already told to me as like, this is not right. Don't do that. It's not professional or that's not appropriate or whatever it is. Before you even have have the opportunity to think about those things or to, it, to decide whether or not it, it feels natural to you, it's like, nope, you have to be like this. Mm. And there's no other choice. These are the rules. And of course, the rules are usually dictated by white supremacy.
0: Hmm. Well, there's a line from the Robert Frost poem, the famous Two Roads in a Wood, and it's something about knowing how way leads on to way. And right, you talk about, right, I mean, that you're saying that once, once you're forced to become a certain way, like it's tough to get out of that, right? I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but just like the way that the, like you talk about not being a choice and that those are the people we become as the years go on and on and on, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, that explanation. And another quote from the book is, quote, I would beat racism by becoming beautiful. Your epigraph, I'm a huge fan of epigraphs. Your epigraph is from Malcolm X, and it's basically like, who taught you to hate? And I, I don't think he necessarily gives an answer, but obviously the rhetorical question, the answer is white supremacy, you know, taught you to hate yourself, right? And to mm-hmm. look, I wonder about ideas of when you were growing up about just racism, subtle or not, and the ways that you were limited, but also, but just like how I'm just going to beat that. By being beautiful, by being the best rider, by being the best fashion, Mm -hmm. fashionista, you know, fashion rider, all the above.
1: Mm -hmm. I think um, it's a pretty naive concept because there is nothing that you can do to outrun racism. There's no clothes you can wear. There's no way you can do your hair. There's no way you can speak. There's no way you can look that will help you, that will keep you safe from racism. Like there's nothing. And so the thought that you could do that as a pathway to acceptance is just like, it's really childish, right? Because um, it assumes that the world will organize itself around you doing the quote unquote, right thing, Mm. but the quote unquote, right thing does not matter. Mm. Um, especially when it comes to being black in America. So there's really no way to win. And in my opinion, the best thing to do is to educate other people so that they understand that blackness is not a monolith, it, like every way of being black is a good way or mm. an acceptable way. Um, and just as valid as every way of being white.
0: Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And so many occasions in the in the book, you just a reminder of like how history is not never past. History is not that old. You you talk about like living in Westchester County. Mm-hmm. Like is it is that like Scarsdale, or am I thinking of a different? Like I don't know exactly. Yeah, Scarsdale
1: is in Westchester. Yep.
0: Okay, and is that like Yonkers and?
1: Yep, Yonkers in Westchester. Yep.
0: Okay, so it's like it's a little bit outside of New York City. Is that safe to say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So just the idea of like you, you write about how even the idea of hometown is kind of a strange concept, um, but you know you were in many ways isolated from like the big city, mm-hmm. but um, and and by your, you know by your family and by by your loving family, I say insulated insulated with I think has a nicer connotation than isolated, right? Mm-hmm. But you just write about even like your grandpa and the experiences he had with racism, and much more toxic in your face racism, and just a reminder like history is not that long ago you. Like you talked about with, um, with the girl and her her list, um, you know, eight years ago is not that long.
1: No, yeah, I dedicated mm-hmm. um, my book to both my grandparents. Yeah, um, because my grandfather in particular did a lot of work in trying to educate my sister and I about his experiences. Um, he was an engineer, mm-hmm. and you know he worked in the White House. And there's like photos of him with his coworkers who are all wow. white. And he's the only black one. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how crazy that we were having the same experience. Mm. Um, And, you know, I, I just was very shut down as a child, though, I just did not want to hear or receive that. Um, And I think this happens to a lot of kids are like, well, it's so different for, for me. And I also think that problematically, what happens in schools is, they set up racism as this dichotomy between niceness and meanness. Mm. And if you're racist, you're mean. Mm. And if you're not racist, you're nice. So mm. I'm like, well, everyone at school is nice to me. So there's no racism, right? Um, and it's very limiting. And I mean, I, I see it all the time. Uh, during Black History Month on TikTok, there was like a lot of parents like having their kids like recount what they learned at school. And they were saying, well, they didn't like Dr. King because he wanted everyone to be nice to each other and I was like it's so much like I I'm not a childhood education expert but Mm -hmm. I'm like it's so much more complex than that and if we never get past this nice mean Mm -hmm. um, paradigm like we're, we're never going to like actually be able to explain to children like what was happening and so I think I had a limited understanding of that and then my grandma because we had like a little book club just the two of us where she would read all these like creepy YA books that I was reading (laughs) never complain
0: gotta love grandma for that
1: yeah
0: (laughs) yeah um I, I wonder maybe what kind of maybe you don't know what kind of like mental calculus like your grandparents or your parents did to like you know the scariness of the world especially a racist world but like you know just letting you be a kid and then like but also being realistic with you about the world
1: um I think it's a very difficult line I think for any parent um I think a lot of people were asking me if I blamed my parents if I was angry at them for sending me to prep school um I never believed that anyone in my family ever did anything with the intention to harm me I think they genuinely thought this is the best thing for our children. Mm -hmm. Um, My sister and I were extremely academically advanced. So they wanted to give us opportunities Mm -hmm. that would reflect and be able to nurture those talents. Um, And I'm not like upset about that, but they, and they also tried, you know, we had a policy in our house, like we had no white dolls. Um, They tried their best to, do what was in their power mm-hmm. but at the same time like once kids go to school like that's it and i did a podcast last year or two years ago where the woman who i interviewed was israeli and she come to america and she was like we have a no disney policy but then her daughter gets enrolled in kindergarten all of a sudden comes back being like i love elsa uh, the mom said how'd she know about elsa the kids at school her about elsa sure sure sure, sure. <laughs> unless we are gonna keep them Completely isolated. Yeah. There's gotta be a way that culture infiltrates your home mm-hmm. even if you don't want it in there. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and in the book you write about um my guess, I don't know enough enough about like you you write about going to school, like in Connecticut, the prep school. Like mm-hmm. I I would think they probably were they were probably more left leaning, at least, you know, ostensibly in voting and such. And I mean you talk about like a dichotomy, nice versus mean, and you know, a lot of people are like, oh. You know, racism is only in the South, right? And obviously, mm-hmm. that's not true at all. Mm-hmm. I wonder about like the niceness, maybe on the outside, but you you write about like that that three way phone call scandal. I put scandal in quotes, where you were, you know, really unfairly um, blamed that it was not commensurate with what it what had happened. And you know, like, I mean, just I guess you call microaggressions or not, it's all racism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about like one of the one of the boys basically getting back to you that he didn't want to date you because you were black mm-hmm. I, I just wonder how like you know going to school with like maybe quote-unquote liberals and maybe i'm wrong while you can correct me and then also experiencing the same kind of racism that that you know maybe stereotypically is associated with other groups
1: yeah i think um that for the most part the messaging that I was taught is that, you know, we don't talk about politics. We don't talk about anything controversial. We don't bring that mm-hmm. stuff up. So anything that is uncomfortable doesn't get spoken about because it's impolite. And so, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I was in high school in the Bush years. Hmm. It was a mix. <laughs> I think, you know, we couldn't okay. vote, but okay. it was a, a mix. Um, and yeah, it was like those things just like don't get brought to the forefront ever. Okay. Like you're just not supposed to talk about them.
0: The quote unquote colorblind society, maybe, huh? Yeah, it's like not. If we don't talk about it, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. We well, yeah, you talk about nice. I mean, I know there's a lot of the 20 year anniversary of the Iraq invasion, and it's like you know, I mean, Bush was oh, shucks and you know he. He has a great friendship with Michelle Obama, and they shook hands and this and that. But and he seems like he's so nice and friendly. But shoot, I mean, what did he do over there? You know, people people have have it's, you know it's, his, right. I mean, his legacy is his legacy is uh, so mixed when it shouldn't be. <laughs> I guess is what I'm getting at, right?
1: It's yeah, things get really like murky, you know. Mm. I think I think like that, especially when it comes to politics, mm-hmm. the. Thing that the options that are presented are hero or villain, and mm. like not that you like everyone has the capacity to be both at any given time, but you have to like kind of choose. And I think that like a lot of historical figures are coming under fire for a lot of different reasons. It's like, hey, why are all these people on the money? Like, mm. but they're horrible. <laughs> like, why do we have to look at Andrew Jackson every day? Like, I mean, that's insane to me.
0: Oh, literally on the money, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: on the money. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like. The The way that, you know, we kind of like minimize, quote unquote, the bad hmm. uh, to emphasize the good and like, yeah, just because someone had a job doesn't automatically make them good. Right. Uh, there's a lot of other factors that that go into it.
0: God, so true. She, yeah. Just because someone had a job like, oh, yeah, he right. The title <laughs> the title looked nice. But yeah, man. Well, so I know there's been a lot. I know there's two always back and forth on the pronunciation. I don't know. Is it Du Bois, Du Bois? Du Bois. The boys. you write about the double consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, I mean, some really, I mean, it's nonfiction, but there's a lot of, I mean, very poetic writing. And you write about like, quote, the fog of privilege made it unfeasible for them to find themselves in the black character when I was constantly finding myself, no matter how implausible in white ones. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess I was kind of narrating in some of the high school years and some of those um, discussions and classes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you write a lot, um, you know, write a lot about hair in overall, and overall, you write about the. The process of you know getting the perm, and you wrote about that. You wrote about this. You write quote, white supremacy exerts a stranglehold over every culture that is not exclusively white and flattens blackness, producing a mythic monolith of black culture, one that commands there's a singular way to be black. And so I have I would have to think that, in that way, I mean, token black girl is the title, like being that you're one of the few, one of the only, maybe in some classes that you had. You felt like so much pressure on you.
1: Oh, yeah. My therapist still works with me and is like, you know, you don't have to represent all black women. And I'm like, I'm 34. like, no. I have to learn that constantly um, because I feel this like pressure. I'm like, I have to be, I might be the only one in this room. So I have to make sure that they understand that because um. there's, I mean, a lot of friends that I have who don't have other black friends who I don't see interacting with black people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, you know, as, as you going into, into high school and into college, you talked a little bit about the the first um, internship, would that be Nylon? Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, over the couple of years, well, not couple, more than a couple of years, you were at a couple of different companies and you have, you know, a lot of occasions for sure of of overworking, like seemed like everyone was overworking. And, and some of that seems like it was put on, you know, you put on yourself, they put it on themselves but also yeah. was forced, right? It became like a never ending cycle, not the greatest, um, you know, not the, the most healthy habits, right? Cigarettes yeah. and Diet Coke, maybe not you, but it sounds like others. Mm-hmm. And, um, you no, know, you do write a lot about, about body image for yourself and you, you start off with, you know, when you're nylon, like, am I thinking, right? Like kind of like the Paris Hilton era. Mm, excuse yeah. me, excuse, well, Perez Hilton is what I'm thinking of.
1: Yeah. Perez. Yeah. Right.
0: and just very like mean and, and mean girly and, right and just kind of like um snapping and kind of you know like like snappy comebacks and and that kind of thing. Joan Rivers is a great example of who you use there. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that um that early environment kind of how that affected you. You know just 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 a very I guess I don't know if judgmental is the term.
1: Yeah, like it became like the you know you got more authority mm-hmm. kind of the meaner or more scathing that you could be. Sure. So I, I think that that's what the culture kind of encouraged and it was very toxic. It was, <laughs> it was not healthy for anybody at right. all. Right. Yeah. That, very tempting. That's,
0: that's what really got to me, which is like, it's, it's like, kind of like, why? Like, it seemed like it was healthy for no one, you know, it seemed no. like no one was happy about it. Just
1: but like... the thing is that like a lot of people don't really like themselves, like, in publishing, uh, for, like a lot of different reasons, like- uh. No, and I don't think a lot of people want to admit that, but they honestly don't. So,
0: yeah. Oh, shoot. I, I mean, I think about how hard it is a lot of times, I mean, myself included, to accept like a compliment, right? Yeah. Like that should be easy. Like, thank you, but it's just, oh, man. Mm hmm. I mean, you even write about how that, the that that culture of you know starving yourself and overworking yourself, and and obviously body image is across the world, across you know genders and everything. But you, you talk about even how like Kerry Washington felt that you know the famous Kerry Washington, and you know kind of like not so much of an overlap between maybe the people you were you were covering, and you know the people who who do the actual work. You write about clothing is like sense of ownership a chance to have control and you know i think i think you wrote something like i wasn't necessarily loving cashmere on the skin what is what is the allure of maybe it's too generic of a question what's the allure of just of looking good of having the the right clothing of being in season all of that you know especially for you
1: um i thought about this today because i wore a uniform for most of my life but i always I, you know, I, I went, when I was looking for prom dresses, I was like, I want a vintage one because I did not want anyone to have the same dress as me. And even though I looked physically different from my classmates, because I had to wear the same thing as them day in, day out, I thought it was really serious when I got to like, make that choice on my own. So I'm like, that's when I started vintage shopping when I was in high school because mm. I wanted to find things that no one else could have. Okay. Um, and I think it made me feel really powerful. You know, when when Rihanna was accepting her CFDA award, she said, I always loved clothes because I said like, this is the, how I'm going to compete. You know, this girl mm. might be able to beat me, but she cannot beat my outfit. <laughs> <laughs> and- mm-hmm. Um yeah of course like it is superficial but all superficial things have real meaning if mm. we let them and um for me i liked the power that like clothing gave me in other areas where i felt like i wasn't very powerful or people mm. didn't really respect me or listen to me but i knew that if i became an authority in fashion that i would get that respect and they would listen
0: to me and they did you you write about how you took fashion theory Is was that your major or was that like a class
1: that was my major that i made up
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice would you i mean whether it was in that major or otherwise like i mean is there a lot to be said for like clothing as like creativity and like an outlet of like you know in the same way as so-and-so is an artist visually I mean, is mm-hmm. it a type of art? Is that am I over again, am I overgeneralizing that?
1: Well, in the academic sense, um, fashion theory is really about the evolution of the ability for individuals to choose their clothing and like mm. the implications of what that means for like the wider culture. Dang. So for example, um, when we lived in like feudal times mm-hmm. um, where we had like, like systems of kingdoms, like the king would get the best things. And then like his court would get like second best things <laughs> and then like the bourgeoisie would get like the third best things. And then like, lastly, the peasants hmm. and you would not be able to transcend. You cannot be a peasant and go to be a King. Hmm. You can't just dress different. Sure. Like you can't, you literally can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the American system, like similarly, like there were things that like slaves were able to wear that masters would never wear and so Mm. the slave could never wear the master's clothing ever never 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 but with the democratization of fashion in after the industrial revolution and the way that we outsource clothing production means that now you could be broke and you can go dress like a king if you want to Mm -hmm. there's nothing to stop you from doing that but It doesn't necessarily indicate your status, your place in the world, your education level. It doesn't mean anything like that anymore. So now we have to assign different meanings to it. And the way that we do that is by aligning you with like a political affiliation or a subculture. So, okay. um, punks dress a certain way and quote-unquote preppies dress a different way mm-hmm. and you can kind of make inferences about what people believe and what they want to align themselves with mm-hmm. based on how you're interpreting their clothing
0: wow thank you for i want to take your class <laughs> i want to take your class professor man that makes a lot of sense i know obviously you're 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 summarizing but that that there's a, a lot of interesting things there when yeah. you're talking about like going to sc- like prep school in connecticut and then you talk about some of the, like the gossip girl type um, you know, people you knew, like in some of the magazines and stuff, mm-hmm. um, did you, and then you were just talking about something right now just brought up, but did you, did you go to school with people who used the word summer as a verb? Like, I'm going to go summer on Cape Cod. I'm going to go summer on the Hamptons.
1: No, but they definitely did. Summer. Okay.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know? boat shoes. That's I think I was thinking of boat shoes and preppies. That's what, that's what brought it yeah, up. Yeah. Okay.
1: Like everybody had a summer house. Yeah, <laughs> somewhere to go in the summer and also in the winter.
0: That's awesome. That's funny. Oh man, a lot of Florida probably right in the summer or in the, in the a winter. Lot of, a lot
1: of West Palm Beach, Palm Beach.
0: Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. They can be neighbors with what's his name, the orange guy. Anyways, uh-huh. oh man. Speaking of college, you, there was a real. There's a part that really was really interesting to me and really profound. You talked about taking a course like a Western, audience in Western civilization, something like that. And like, the question was, you know, if, if you could, would you swap bodies with someone? You're like, yeah. And mm. mostly, you said mostly everyone was like, no. Oh like, yeah. Oh.
1: That was a, a, that was a, a yeah. Western feminism. What's and um, yes, the question was like, you would switch bodies with anybody. Like, would you? And I was like, absolutely. And I was, th- I think the only person in the class was like, absolutely. And everybody else like gave these like great answers about like, I trust my body, like and I'm like, what? We're 19. Like we are barely lived. Yeah. In
0: this <laughs> a lot of the, I mean, I mean, it's a great thing to, to aspire to, right? But I'm I'm, I'm with you, right? I mean, a lot of them were li- Had to been lying, right?
1: I don't know. I think they yeah. genuinely like. I was I was so surprised, and yeah. I realized though that I had severed kind of like my connection to my body and mm. and my ability to think of it as a sacred vessel, because I right. was so punishing to it. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to respond to my body's natural needs. Like, if I was hungry, I wanted to turn it off. If I had to, even if I had to pee, I'm like, no, I don't even want to do that right now. Uh. Turn it off. Like, I'm like, that's not good. But uh. over time, if you do that a lot, it makes you very disconnected. It's
0: hardwired, right?
1: Disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah. And so, you know, as you talk about um, becoming, you know, more and more successful, more known in the, in the industries as a writer, as part of the fashion world, um, you know, getting invited to all the big shows and knowing the big people, you you know, a little, uh, you were shouting out uh seeing, seeing Jay-Z and Beyonce as the last guests. Mm-hmm. You you were like the usher, you know, greeter kind of thing. Did yeah. you have uh, any conversation with uh with them? Do you happen to remember that that night?
1: Oh, uh, other, other than, than like, welcome right. and hello, like that's it. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: but but i wonder like how the 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 pressures i mean we all have our internal pressures i mean obviously um you know body dysmorphia that's not the right term but just you know we all have our issues with body of course and just how that kind of related to you like as you're going up and up in the fashion world and seeing you know what what are in the magazine pages what's on the on the internet pages and stuff like how that kind of led you to maybe you know you, you talk about kind of a a pretty intense diet that you had. I mean, diet's not even the word, right? With the doctor, is it Pressler?
1: Passer, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of rambling here, but just like connections between, you know, working in that world where, you know, got to fit in that dress, got to fit this person in that dress and who's on the covers. And then kind of like, and as well as you being like a public facing person, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that, um, There is sometimes like a really big disconnect for people who work in magazines and produce these kind of images Mm -hmm. to see their responsibility in making sure that they alter what the beauty standard is, like Mm. realizing that they actually have the power to do that. So meaning that like there are fashion designers who are women who are plus size or who are short. And yet, you only see six-two, size zero, right,
0: right,
1: seventeen-year-olds walk down their runway, or like even as like they get older. I'm like, where are the older models? Like, I I talk to college-age girls all the time, or like younger-age girls, and they're just like, wait, that's what 34 looks like. They're like, oh my god. I'm like, what do you think happened? They're like, I don't know. Yeah, because they never see it. Sure, they don't see that you can like. I'm like what do you guys think happened to us? I'm like, but that is like a disservice from Hollywood. It's a disservice in the fashion industry yeah, like, okay. to not accurately reflect the wide breadth of women that exists, mm-hmm. you know, and size wise, like, and that becomes like really problematic and really limiting. So sometimes mm-hmm. people, you know, will get in the Two positions and then not even be, I mean, and this happened to me too. Like when I w- worked at certain magazines, like I would want to feature black women and the boss above me was like, no, that's not right. So if someone, you know, who is really a bigger decision holder than you are a bigger stakeholder than you are is like, that's not what we're going with. Mm-hmm. There's not really a lot that you can do, but it right. ends up being so destructive to the audience who then receives those messages that you're mm. responsible for putting out.
0: Yeah, I mean one of the, I mean the things that are so great about this book is like I mean we we know we know what it means when we say system, systemic or systematic but you really describe like what that means what that means for you know for a black woman to speak up in whatever way in in the ways that you were talking about and like you know, you, you'll be you'll be labeled as troublesome. You'll be labeled, you know, and you, that that Tracy Ellis Ross example you gave was a great one about like the extra labor just to get to that movie or that TV show, right? And you know, again, to talk about okay, we know body image is an issue, and we need to do better with with the phobias. And we need to do better with representation. But for to read your personal story makes it you know ten times more. you going to help us to remember those things more, for sure. I'll never, going back to the idea of, like, you know, the middle-aged fashion designer or the five-foot-two one, I'll never get over the idea of, like, the the overweight man who hasn't exercised in so long, and he's just saying, man, that guy sucks, you know, the basketball player or the football player, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. The guy who's in, in the best physical shape as possible, you know? And again, that's not to body shame the other person. It's just, like, that, how do we expect this other person to be perfect, and you know, in in, in that way, so... Mm-hmm. As, as the book goes on, you know you get into the the specific jobs you have and you know again, I, people who've experienced racism will say will often say right that like whether it's a microaggression or not it's it's racism. Mm-hmm. but you know some were were more in your face than others and you know so sorry to read the one about Stewart mm-hmm. right one of the one of the parties you're at and he was drunk and I'm sure he probably would have explained it away as oh, I was just drinking and all that. Mm-hmm. But um, just incredibly problematic, and you can you can understand why that would be so ta- taxing on your mental health and everything yeah. like that. You, when you worked at BET, you you were able to not be the token black girl, right? You mm-hmm. talked about a lot of great things that 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 happened there. Um, but it seems like politics is politics everywhere. And I don't mean politics like Republican Democrat, right? But like there's always allegiances, right, and rivalries, and the whole deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wonder, like, kind of overall. In the fashion industry, what you learned about how it's different from mainstream society, regular society, and maybe it's not.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's a lot like high school. If you went to an all-girls, there you go,
0: there you go, all boys school here, but I, we had all girls yeah. schools at our sister schools. Yeah. Uh,
1: it's a, it's a lot of psychological warfare. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. I think that's what, like what it is. Yeah, um a lot of like survivor, outwit, outlast, shoot. outplay. shoot.
0: Yeah. again, it's hard to oversimplify, but like all the things, all the ills of society, you know, racism, homophobia, sexism, you know, internalized sexism, misogyny, all of the above. I mean, you write about those. I wish you didn't have to write about them. I wish they weren't true, but you write about them so well. And without giving away some of the ending, you know, um, there is. I'm not gonna say it's a happy ending because you you describe how you you like everyone is still a work in progress, but but able to to find some peace kind of from the industry and from some of the toxicities. I really really appreciate how much you how honest you are in the book. Thank you. Right? I mean, there's something if if you were to just what's so great about the book is that it's about you, but it's also you know points the camera whatever the metaphor is points the camera outside to society. Mm-hmm. But it would be easy for you to just be like ah you know, they, 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 mm-hmm. but I mean, almost like the last page or two, you even have like, almost like bullet points of like, you know, things that you wish would have gone differently. Yeah. How, what was that like to, and, and I'm glad that you've, you know, found some happiness and, and a lot more happiness and, 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 relaxation and tranquility from those toxic places. What, um? what would you kind of say to people who are in toxic spaces, whether that's work, whether that's in their own lives, like, whether it's about therapy, formal or not, and kind of what you've learned, like you've gotten older, and again, you're very young, still have many, many years, but just like what you kind of I guess I guess kind of what you would have told like 18 year old you or 21 year old you.
1: Um, well, therapy definitely helps.
0: Agreed. Um, agreed.
1: And and I would say that my therapist helped me really understand like what a self love practice meant and what it is. And um You know, I think I had a very commodified concept of Mm -hmm. self-love primarily because I worked in magazines. So we spent a lot of time telling people like, oh, go on vacation, get massages, like buy the bag, like that's Mm self-care. That's how you love yourself. Like Mm -hmm. that's how you treat yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's like, it's ultimately very empty if you don't have self-compassion and forgiveness, which is like how I was able to be so honest in the book because I recognize like, I can't love myself without accepting these parts of me. And like, I have to stop trying to hide them and put them away because it's ugly or because it is not, you know, presenting this perfect picture, like Mm. recognizing all parts of yourself, like need to be worked on, but need to be loved. And I'm like, Mm. yeah, I- did that thing. And I think a lot of people could benefit from, you know, developing those ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would also say that what makes this easier is knowing that it's not an individual problem. And it's not, there's not a solution that an individual can come up with to systemic issues. Like, Mm -hmm. of course, like there are things that we can do um but you know had I been this kind of like revolutionary as an 18 year old working at nylon (laughs) as an intern Mm -hmm. like I would have never gotten an assistant job I would have never gotten an editor job I would never become a director Mm -hmm. um you know like there are very real consequences for how you have to go about your pursuit of power and Mm -hmm. so I think giving yourself a break as well for being like, Oh, like I should have said something different here. I should have did something different here. Like, actually, like you are not at fault for someone being racist toward you. Mm. (laughs) Like it's not some, some way that you have to react that would change it. They will still have that opinion, whether or not you say the perfect thing Mm. Um, and likely like they don't want to engage in debate with you. So like even starting it is probably silly. so Understanding that and having like compassion for like the times when like you didn't know or you couldn't say, Mm -hmm. I think is also like really critical to being able to grow.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, very well said. You know, like I said, it's it's one thing to to read about it like in in a magazine or whatever, or to just hear about it in kind of a a a cold or cold blooded way. But Mm -hmm. yours yours is personal. You know, towards the end of the book, you talk a lot of throughout the book, but towards the end of the book, like. You know these these. You say yes. There's been change in the fashion industry, but these things are are still there, All right. I mean the the idea. You talk about like a commodification, and obviously in magazine writing and writing, you want to use the perfect words. But I was so struck by like the vagueness of the language you write about, like oh, you know, well, I, I guess th- this one's not vague, but like no ethnic people or you know, uh, you know, looked for or those kind of things are just brutal. But things like oh, it's not, it's not our look. Mm-hmm. right and, and your book makes it clear you say it's not our look you oh, wash your hands of it oh it's not i'm not racist it's just you know it's just not yeah. our look mm-hmm. and then if that said if that said a hundred times and a thousand times it becomes the the accepted norm right yeah
1: yeah
0: i'll, I'll uh and with two questions for you one i'd love to hear some of the really cool feedback you've gotten from the book and, and two if if you want to talk about any future projects you got coming up
1: sure okay um yeah, the response to the book has been incredible. I was pretty convinced that other people were having incredibly similar experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes it shocks me like how similar our experiences Uh could be. And it's interesting because again, like it's just not talked about, like you're taught, like it's not polite, you don't bring it up. So Mm -hmm. you don't even know like what's safe. Um, and so when one person like opens the doorway to that, like it has been okay. really amazing.
0: That's awesome.
1: And as for future projects, I'm working on a fiction book right now. Nice. That's actually what I wanted to write the whole time, but this book mm. had to come out first, like because I was having so many issues, like learning to be a fiction writer because <laughs> I spent all of my career like doing features sure. and recording and so i was like i don't know how to like build a world Mm. by myself and so it was Mm. really challenging for me but now that i know i can write a book i know i can write a fiction oh heck yeah nice
0: oh man looking forward to that you know again want to thank you so much the book is is so good you're talking about how it was finished in 2021 and it's like i feel like this book you know books have so much of a of a of a shelf life pardon the pun like Your book can be read in three years and it can be read differently, but also this, you know what I mean? I just feel like it's, there's so much more to be gleaned from the book, even for readers and someone's going to discover it in seven years and it's still going to hit home. So congratulations. And I know it was not easy to, in in pandemic times to publish a book, but you know, very much critically acclaimed and fan acclaimed and and rightfully so. Thanks for, for sharing your, uh, your rationale and and for the background. It's been great talking to you.
1: Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me.
0: Been an absolute pleasure. Mm -hmm. Wish you great luck with everything you do in the future. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to episode 171 with Danielle Prescott. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will P-O-1, the number one. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel danielle i'm so bad at this can oh, i i always forget can you uh shout out your your instagram your social media your contact info if you'd like
1: oh, sure um i'm at danielle prescott p-r-e-s-c-o-d on instagram and at danielle prescott on twitter as well and at danielle prescott seven on tiktok
0: <laughs> oh tiktok nice <laughs> any particular places you recommend to buy the book or is it all good
1: um it's all good yeah there i like it's surprised. i don't really even know what bookstores it's in, it's in mcnally jackson yeah. in new york it's at barnes and nobles it's available on amazon bookshop.org okay. at some local stores in new orleans as well but like i don't even sometimes people will send me pictures of it and i'm like oh i didn't know it was there so that's oh, amazing cool. very
0: cool <laughs> yeah thank you for that Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting when I'm convinced it's a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 172 with Robert Lopez. He's the author of three novels, including *Kambi*, Bolongo, Mean River named one of 25 important books of the decade by html giant all back full and a novel and stories a better class of people and we will discuss his newest book which is called dispatches from puerto nowhere this episode will air on march 24th for now thanks again for listening and i hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like danielle prescott whose work like token black girl gives you chills at will